I am Cornell. I'm Dwayne Roy, the Eat That Gillette, and I'm Kareem. And welcome to the Fifty Podcast, where history bear with me, real strategy making queens talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottoms up. Also, he's a wicked girl. He said the girl is still like the early. I just said, I am Cornell. I didn't, I didn't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't realize. My bad. Mm-hmm. I see you. I see you. You're going to Cornell. That is my new fixation. No, must not pass with Cornell and Prosperity today. The newest relationship I wish to you and your paper. And his dissertation, right? Oh, child. She alright. Sometimes we should alright ourselves, but it's alright. Um, I had it open to tell you the progress. I think I'm up to 48 pages, references included or something. Um, but yeah, I have a few things that I need to tighten up and connect. I don't think I have like a lot of writing, but just like to make sure that it flows and just make sure it makes sense. So that when I send it to my dissertation advisor, she's not like, none of this is making sense. Cause you know, them actually do that to this dude, right? But they did it at his dissertation defense. One of his person, one of his, um, committee members were like, um, none of this is making sense to me. I'm going to say, Jesus, girl, I want Caribbean woman. I'm going to say, right, quite a boy, something. No friend did them something in a private outside a company, not when the world I was sitting down there, but in the good still, in my teaching them, so I had to shave. But it had come, it had come, it had come, it had come. But how can you not have conversations about these things before, before that point? Right, and that is why I don't want to have a dissertation committee, even though them, them someone wants to reach out to her, but I said, mm-hmm, for she come do me like what she do him, no, please. If I must admit, for my master's dissertation, I actually never met with my supervisor. Like, there was just one email. <laughs> but in my defense, I love him to bits. Baseball woman that, woman that writes it, plan, he really wasn't one expert. So, I mean, you come and tell me, can't talk to an expert and get guided to all of them, fuck with you know. But I just, it wouldn't know, it wouldn't know. So, it is very much, and I mean, I'm not the only person who do that. So, it is very much possible. To reach that stage there and go to just tell us, um, hello, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, I do think that's a very UK thing to do, though, because um, academics that I know who did graduate programs in the UK, they seem very much hands-off. Like, you do your coursework, you do shit on your own, and then you have to be like, okay, now you have to show that you did something over the past few years. Rough. I feel so bad then. I think I'm UK at least. All right, mm-hmm. so... What have you been up to? I see you got your hair done. Right. You see what? You will not catch me on this podcast saying, why am I getting done? But <laughs> um, I did, you know, my little, you know, my daughter does my hair. Anika, big up yourself. Anika, anyway, you're there. So she come away and she just do a little thing, right? Um, so it was done for a purpose. And at the appropriate time, I'll let y'all know what the purpose is. But right now it's not appropriate. Um, that aside, um, I actually just finished being up one of my reports then, um, for work this month. I'm going to want to eat like, you know, my obvious thing. Sometimes I forget some other things. And then we're still in a right out where actually it's about to buy the other things that deserve to appear. So yeah, that's the vibe right now. My arm up here. I'm going to feel good. And I get can't talk to me. Um, and what about you, Miss Nell? Wait, hold on. Speaking of earning your pay, have, has things been... Or have things been busier or more difficult since you took over more uh, leadership stuff? I mean, it's, it's been hectic, I must admit. Like, I feel like September and October, it's been a lot. We've been managing some, some major um, project opportunities. We've brought on three new staff, and I led that process. Lots of meetings, um, and lots of meetings that I never planned to have, but I have to have. Um, and then there was this day when we dad wake up early in the morning because I, did, I think I didn't mention it because we don't have meetings with people in Geneva. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been rough. But luckily, um, with the new people that have come on, I've been able to delegate. Um, so now I'm all right. I'll find time for play a little game yesterday and cleanse the spirit. Um, I'm all wash out. So I'm wake up early so I'm going wash out. So, but then the rain flat my show. So there's that. Oh, oh, you know what? I think the last thing we recorded, there was a rain thing going on. I had no idea that there was a storm, like a whole tropical storm happening. 
I was up and me alone by my lonesome, no one here to weather the storms with me. Oh, well, it sounds like that might change soon. So, oh, that's why I'm gonna do the ear. I don't do my ear for man. That is what you will learn. Man, don't appreciate it, somebody. <laughs> I do my legs for them. Noted. <laughs> Noted. Uh, I keep over this song. Um, not much grading, uh, school stuff, work stuff. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned explicitly, but I'm quite, well, sort of, kind of, maybe on the the job market, and that's been a weird thing to be doing, space to be in. I don't. Anyway, that's a whole situation that's happening, and um, some. Re- well, some ethics stuff got approved for a job I'm doing, so now I, I have to start doing interviews and such, which is exciting for the study, but annoying for the purposes of my schedule because I have enough things going on already. So, whatever. So I know we talked about like what job you would like to do. Um, you want to share what kinds of job? No, no, nothing too specific. I'm not jinxing. We don't want to jinx nothing. But what? kinds of work have you been kind of looking at since you've been starting the process? Okay, so I've been telling myself that I'm fairly ambivalent about academia as a like a career decision, but a few months ago I was like, let me just send us a couple of applications, see what see what happens, because you never know. Um, but it's become quite the yeah, quite the process. I have a whole Excel situation, some of the positions are like explicitly in my field, um, which is good and exciting. Um, but it's also terrifying because you don't really know how people are going to respond. Um, but also, what was the other thing that was concerning? I don't know. They're very particular about how documents are supposed to be prepared. So that's a little. Remind us of your field, you know, you're bright. I don't know what you're putting for sometimes it's dogs forget. Uh, so I am in a women and gender studies program, but my fields are in black studies, specifically diaspora, sexuality, gender, black geography, surveillance, um, cultural studies type things. I don't know, whatever. That's really not important, but I mean, we'll see how it goes. I, I, I'll, I'll consider it a success if I get at least one interview. I don't have to get a job. But it, you know, it would be a nice boost. I don't know if the gay cousin or your future employer listen to the podcast. You right. know, so I somebody tweeted the other day. I don't know this person from Adams. I never know, so he would not listen to fish teeth. So here we are. The work might write out at, at the end of the episode. With all of that being said, um, let me introduce our stunning um, guest for this week. So we're having a conversation with um, the individual that was recently awarded LGBT Person of the Year because of the great work they've done in the community. And like Cornell, um, they're a brilliant academic. Um, and Kareem, what do you mean? <laughs> Everybody knows Kareem Magudas. <laughs> We just want to talk about you and and and, and your black study some some. Everybody knows a career working at public administration. Why am I mess up my intro? The info sorry, I carry you. <laughs> Aliens, brilliant academic. Who always like? I don't know what is the difference. Carrying these words, but understand all the time. You and I want to know how it is, but I understand. But after I flip through Google and I, and I try to figure out things, and me and my friend them after I put the puzzles together and say, ah, so yeah, that, that is why I'm so like you. Oh, you hateful. Welcome, Javante Anderson, the brilliant archivist and other things that we don't know how to say properly without being problematic. Welcome to Fish Tea. Hi, hi. Hello, hello. I just want to say, you use words me can't understand sometimes too. So, name there's that. Name one. All your legal words then. That's different, that's different, that's different. <laughs> so, welcome to the Fish Tea. Um, as a start, tell the girls about yourself. What do you do? What do you study? You know, what is your interest? When you find out you as a so, all of this for all of <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, hi, world. My name is Javante Anderson. Um, 
I'm a second year PhD student in the Department of English at the University of Miami. Oh, I've said that like a million times this semester. Um, but yeah, um, I'm from Kingston, Harborview, oh, that's where the airport is. And I moved here a couple of years ago for undergrad. I did undergrad at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. Um, and started his PhD in 2019. So I've been here ever since. And I mean, my interests have kind of evolved, but not, I mean, too radically. Um, I was interested in the contemporary moment at the beginning of my PhD. So dance hall, um, the relationship of queerness to dance hall, I mean, I still am, and that's probably going to make its way into the dissertation. Um, but no, I am fascinated, which is why you probably call me an archivist, but I'm really fascinated by the late 19th century, the early 20th century, um, and the queer figures, or people I might call queer figures, um, who are in Jamaica. And so I'm like constantly working on or reading about going through the Gleaner, going through um, the other you know, local newspapers trying to find traces of things, um, not just like court documents, but like, um, I mean, I was just reading a couple of days ago about a river that people would go to in the 1920s um, in Enfield, St. Mary, and they'd wash there, but they'd also go there to, to bathe. And it, there was, they had to like appoint an inspector, like a police to stand by the river almost 24-7 to make sure that people didn't go down there because they were kind of um, suspicious that the people were, you know, engaging in all kinds of activities that they shouldn't have been, but also that um, they were polluting the river by bathing in the river. So I'm like really interested in those moments of what I'm calling mischief, right? Like people not necessarily identified as like gay or lesbian or so, right or like participating in so activities uh, or activities that might be characterized as so and so that's what my research is really about is is looking at those like moments that are not necessarily like politics like pnp jlp politics um that that precede that kind of organization um but that that the playfulness itself that rebelliousness itself is what is interesting to me. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to write about and write about it in relation to violence um, and violence as something that sometimes isn't always separated easily from pleasure. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's what I'm writing about. And I, I don't know if I answered your question. I feel like I'm like going on and on, but that's what I'm working on right now. Um, and, I, and I'm currently writing about Claude McKay to, to give you a, a figure I think like epitomizes that mischief. I'm glad you said that because, well, before you go clear, because I'm going to say, I live a foreign and get Jamaica award for LGBTC per, LGBT personality here. Yeah, I'm going to Jamaica, but since you've clarified all of that and your relationship to Jamaica, I'm like, all right. Carry You're also on. teaching, <laughs> by the way. You're also teaching, no? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Un uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I am. I'm teaching, yeah. It's... What's that like? I mean, because uh, I think we all have different experiences with teaching. Mm -hmm. um, like talking about how you and your students interact. Um, so you've shared some of it online, but what, what has it been like for you, young queer person from Jamaica, um, mm -hmm. doing, you're doing teaching at a university in Miami? Um, yeah, I think PhD programs are like really good at exploitation, like they have studied it and they know how to exploit you. So, you know, you get, of course you get a stipend that is supposed to maintain you for your five, however many years that you're there. Um, and a part of your package, so to speak, is the, your commitment to teaching at least for a year, at least at U Miami, you have to teach for a year of the time that you're in the program. Um, you don't get extra money to do that, even though you're taking on extra work, right? Because they see it as like work experience, they see it as like an internship. They even call it a teaching assistantship, which is for me very derogatory because I'm not assisting anybody in teaching, I'm teaching my own class. Um, 
And so it, it's been an ex- quite an experience because I guess, you know, I'm living in Miami. It's like white Cuban central. People, I, people can tend to be very hostile, especially on the bus, you know, which I don't even really mind because sometimes I'm up on the bus, I'm on my seat and there's no seats. I'm going to catch up beside somebody and then get up and move because I don't want to sit down beside black people. And me, all right, do that. Um, but it can be quite hostile. And so, you know, my work is in race, gender, and sexuality studies. And so I'm always very apprehensive about going into the classroom and teaching about these things. But this semester has been, you know, it surprises me and continues to surprise me in all the best ways. You know, people have been very, um, very reflective about their identities. I have one black person in the class, everybody else is white. And they've been very reflective about, you know, their identities, about their privilege, um, and about, you know, we, we talk a lot about slavery um, and its connections to the contemporary moment. And people have been very open to doing that. Um, and so I'm, I'm very surprised. But it hasn't always been easy because, I mean, this is my first time teaching and I'm doing it on Zoom. And, you know, it's hard to get people excited about learning from Zoom. I mean, I'm not excited. My classes are two and a half hours and I spend at least two hours of it <laughs> staring off into space. Um, and so it's hard to get the kids excited about learning, um, especially when you have your cameras on. So I, I've given them the, 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 you know, the opportunity to turn their cameras off and you know, try to engage them in other ways. But it hasn't always been easy. Um, you know, sometimes kids are like falling sick. I had one kid email me from his like, what I thought was a hospital bed because he was so sick. I, I mean, I know what never in the hospital um, telling me that he needed some more time for his homework. I'm like, obviously, I mean, you expect me to tell you no, <laughs> you know, so it's been tough teaching. In, in, in a pandemic for the first time. But I mean, I've been surprised in so many ways and you know, the comments that the, the kids, I should stop saying the kids, but I think of them as my children. The comments that the students leave um, in my um, reviews, uh, you know, they did a midterm review of the class, you know, we're just fabulous. I think I'm doing okay, but you know, we'll see, the end of the semester, we'll tell the final truth. That sounds touching and nice. <laughs> I have a question. I'm gonna read why it took too long to answer. But I have this into the archives. It's something I do have like a tangential interest in because of um, I remember back when I was um, doing one of my courses, it was long post looking at long post-colonial theory. And one of my arguments was that homophobia in its own way was developed, came up in black communities in, in, in the Caribbean, particularly as a form of resistance to white hegemony and white and how planter class said they were righteous but weren't. And so homophobia was us responding to their lack of righteousness in a way. And it was, um, I remember reading one particular paper saying, you know, even though you're in a system of slavery and in a system of domination and colonialism where a lot of the cultural morals are forced on you, there is a syncretism between how those um, persons who were enslaved took on pieces and parts of those cultural and sexual mores and made it into their own. So I'm interested in that, um, how you read queerness into the archives based on that kind of that entry point. Yeah, um, I'm always wary of the word community. Um, because it sometimes suggests, um, and I'm sure you're aware of this too, right? A kind of monolith, a kind of um, unidirectional goal and purpose that can be assigned to all the members of the community. And so I tend to prefer words like network or um, other words that suggest that there's that there are both divergences and convergences and not everybody converge on the same thing and not everybody diverge on the same thing. Um, and so I agree that to some extent homophobia is a response to white hegemony because if we're thinking about like the black middle class and like the, the black upper class, absolutely, you know, this was their response, you know, they wanted to be seen as respectable in a particular way, um, especially, especially, um, 
especially because white racism or you know um, anti-blackness in a way position them as not having a certain purchase on gender right like black men not being real men um, black women not being real women um, and so the response was always to kind of um, express or harden um, a performance of gender that was seen as the most respectable and so on and so forth and even like during the decolonization period which of course is cannot be like pinned down to one period but if you're thinking about like the 60s like the black power movement and the 70s the black power movement you know one of the like images that pops up across the diaspora not just in jamaica but like in the u.s and elsewhere is the feminized white man as a way to as a way to resist um, the domination of whiteness, like the feminized white man who is not as masculine as a black man. Um, and so I, I feel like there are some networks of like upper class black people, middle class black people, and even, um, you know, some of the revolutionary elite that take up gender as a site of respectability um, or as a site of resistance. But I think for the working class, especially, it was a little more, a little more muddy, at least in what I'm seeing, a little more muddy um, in the sense that gender, you know, people weren't, people, of course, people had their own, like, uh, some, some of the working class also sided with the upper class and middle class, but people were also generally more wayward <laughs> because they didn't see themselves as having any purchase or any access to the power that middle class and upper class people hope to gain. Um, and so their relationship to that was different. And I remember, you know, doing work on Claude McKay right now, and he talks about in one of, one of his poems, his tavern in Papine that was like filled with all kinds of debauchery on the weekends um, of working class people who <laughs> were living and so you know there, there are moments there's so many moments like that that pop up in the archives that for me tell a story about the working class as you know striving for something that is even more radical and you know the kind of revolutionary elite say they are or like the middle class say they are as a, the supposed leaders of the race or the the, the, the um they call him a particular name I'm forgetting right now, but yeah, the, the leaders of the race. Um, and so I think we have, we have to be careful how we like position a narrative because we have to ask who is doing the positioning, who is positioning themselves as needing particular performances of sexuality, of heterosexuality to advance. Um, and and in, my, in my estimation, and again, I'm only, you know, two years into my study, but in my estimation, it has been like the black, um, middle and upper class that has advanced that take um, over and over again. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Answered right, like a true you. academic. <laughs> I was wondering uh, if you could tell us a bit more about the award and the nomination and the work that you have been doing that led to that nomination nomination yeah yeah um yeah so i was a bit surprised by it. well first of all i didn't know there was such an award so i was surprised at that level but um so i mean nobody ever like thinks of themselves as i mean maybe they do but <laughs> i i suppose nobody thinks of themselves as like the lgbt person of the year i hope not um and so i was surprised on that level um but pleasantly, you know, pleasantly surprised. Nervous as well. Um, because as you say, uh, I think I think Harry much said, you know, I'm here <laughs> in the diaspora, I'm not at home. And so I have a particular relationship to Jamaica. You know, even when I was looking online, some people weren't always familiar with what I was doing online. Um which is understandable, you know, it's, it's a bit like really small space of Twitter in which I do the work that I do, um, fundraising for queer Jamaican people. Um, and so I was quite nervous about that because um, I think the other people who are nominated are also doing great work, you know, some people um, are doing work that might not necessarily be 
um, political in a way that we traditionally understand it, but it's really important work, you know? And so it was just an honor to see myself lined up with all those faces. Like, I um, um phenomena in the work that they're doing and to see my face with theirs, you know, in the same space was kind of exciting um, to me. That alone was enough for me. Um, and so I kind of tuned in to the live that Sunday, I think it was a Sunday, it might have been, kind of tuned into the live that Sunday expecting somebody else to copy it. So when I did, I was, I was kind of, I was really surprised, but really honored and yeah, I, I started this work. I don't know if this is a part of the question. I think it was, but I started this work maybe like a year ago because I was on Facebook and I had seen something that Niche, Niche had posted about a trans man who was um, harassed and I think was actually assaulted uh, and was trying to get the help to move out. And so, you know, I had, in college, I was, I was a college, I was a student activist. And so I was kind of familiar with some of the avenues that we would take when we wanted to, you know, get on the school's nerves. And Twitter would be one of them. Facebook, of course, but Twitter was like one of those engines that, you know how it goes. When that gets going, it, sometimes it doesn't stop. Um, and so I thought I would post on Twitter about it, post a GoFundMe link, post on Twitter about it. And, you know, people were just like giving, 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 giving. And, you know, honestly, that made me feel really happy to know that people were so responsive. And I never thought about it after that until someone else approached me because they thought that it was my initiative. Someone else approached me. I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I have that pull. Um, but then I put it out there and people responded. And so people have been like requesting over and over and over again, you know, that I help them and I've tried to be as, as open to it as possible. So that's how it started. That's what I've been doing and I've been able to raise. By now, since I'm almost done with this initiative, about a million Jamaican dollars, um, which, you know, has been, has exceeded my expectations. So yeah, can't complain. I mean, whenever, I'll just be really quick at this. One of the things I really appreciate is that it seems like you've been able to accumulate uh, a pretty big amount of goodwill online that whenever uh, a situation comes up where someone is in need of support, there, well, I mean, at least from what I've seen, there's, there doesn't seem to be a lot of like hesitation. People, um, there's a sense of faith that it's authentic. You're doing it for a purpose and that the money's going to, uh, get to the person that it needs to to get to, um, and I think that said that about, I guess, your character, but you know, the, and the character that you've uh, cultivated online. I don't know if it would be useful though to like explain to people the kind of like I mean, I think you spoke about this briefly already in the previous episode, Venera. But just in case there are folks out there who might also know other people who might be doing work in their communities, like how the nomination process works. I don't know, that much of come say, thanks for the cue. Um, so, so we do recognize, or we started, I don't know, I don't remember exactly when we started, but we usually, we have two events called PRISM a year. Um, I think we've been doing this since 2016. And I think by 2017, we developed the practice, or 2018, no, actually 2017, we developed the practice of um, using that day around the second prison, which is usually around National Heroes Day. So, you know, there's that long weekend. And we use it to celebrate members of our community um, who are doing work or who have done work. So in the past, we've celebrated um, past leaders who did not get the recognition or enough recognition for what they've done. And so we recognize them then. Uh, and then last year, we recognized both past and upcoming leaders. And this year... Um, we decided that we didn't want it to be just us at JFLAG sitting from where we are selecting who would be decided next um, and that we would kind of formalize it. So, we, so this is the first year that we're having the LGBT person of the year framed as it is. Um, we, just, we just award 
different community leaders in different ways before. Um, so Elton messaged me and said, all right, we'll do more community engagement all the time. I said, listen, I don't want nobody to tell me to give my friend no award. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to set up one committee. We're going to get people from different parts of the community. We're going to get one civil society rep. We're going to get one, some business leaders in the community. We're going to pull everybody together. And what we did was anybody, so we had an open nomination. Um, everybody, anybody could nominate a person for um, their work. Um, and we received over 70 nominations. Many were repeats, um, but for example, Javante was nominated more than once. Um, and in the nomination, the person was supposed to do an explanation of why this person was being nominated for what they were doing. And there wasn't a closed list um, in terms of what the person could be nominated for. There were some broad guidelines, whether or not they were doing well in their profession, whether or not they were giving back to the community, they were volunteering a lot. What we did not want to do was prescript what a leader ought to look like, or rather kind of, or what the LGBT person of the year ought to look like, but allow persons to celebrate the people who are doing the work in different ways that they were. Um, and from those nominations, the, com the committee convened. I was forced to be the chair by Elton, and so I was the chair. Um, and, there are, uh, and we, the committee is shortlisted to five. Um, and from the shortlisting process to five, um, we reached out to the persons that were shortlisted and asked them to submit videos um, or, I mean, uh, we did some videos first, so I would say they could have submitted other forms of, of writing or anything to say why they think they deserve the award. Um, and then after that, um, the decision was based on 40% public vote, 60% committee um, decision. And so the committee was particularly moved by um, all the work that Javante has done over the years to provide support, provide support to different um, persons in the community. Um, and then from where I sit, and, 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 and I finally get to say this to you, Javante, I've always felt like our movement has been, for better or for worse, because we're a small country, defined by what one organization largely has done, whether it was gay freedom movement or JFLAG or whichever. It's been largely defined by one entity. And I've always been interested in the democratizing of the work. And, um, and there have always been people in the community like Latoya Tugs Brown, who are shortlisted, who's been doing work in the community um, and giving back when, um, for example, she has a Christmas tree that she's done a couple of years and things like that. Um, but it is heartwarming to see that somebody of their own initiative, like you say, Cornell, using their goodwill, giving back to the community in the way that they are. And I'm hoping that through this recognition, more persons like Javante um, will come forth and do their bit. They don't have to raise funds um, in that particular way, but do their part to kind of advancing um, the community forward. And I think the critical thing about someone like Javante doing it is that a lot of times the persons who are active in the community are persons who um, are active because they exist on the margins and this is a space where they can one have their voices heard and push for the kind of changes that they need because of the precarious lives they're living you have someone like javante who i, I mean i don't know if they grow poor but critically you're you're a university educated individual and you have some level of privilege and access you don't need to be doing this work and there are many people like you in this community um, who are doing this work because Primarily, them don't need to them. Them secure for them a piece. Them secure them piece of the pride. Them live them gay life by themselves, and that's completely fine. But the fact that someone like you recognizes your privileges and then leverage that privilege to help other LGBT persons, and you're kind of helping to open the door for to keep the door open for someone else, I think that must be celebrated. Um, and I'm glad that throughout that process, you were the person that were awarded because then I hope it signals to other persons to actively do their part. But um, what I also would like to add is that the LGBT person of the year was limited to persons who could visibly accept the award. Um, however, we ensured that there was a silent hero award because we didn't want a situation where only those persons who were visible um, would be awarded for, um, 
for the work that they do in the community. So unfortunately, this time around, um, the persons who were nominated were all visible. However, the committee sat together based on who, um, you know, the different sectors we were in, recognized someone who has been doing, been doing a lot of work for the community, but has been doing it quietly. And so we decided on the person and they were notified and the award would be sent to them. Uh, well, will eventually be sent to them. Um, are, we, are we organized for them to pick it up? Um, and it's a tradition that we're hoping to keep, to always have a silent hero award. Um, it will sadly look shrouded in mystery, but I think it's just one of those things where it will have to be because it's a silent hero award. So for somebody like me, Javante, who is not that familiar with your work, like, I mean, I, I feel like I know of you from... Twitter, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you've been following the Fish Deep podcast like since it launched, right? So, so I, I think that's where I know you from in that space. But for somebody else who's not familiar, could you just say a little bit more about why um, you got into this work? Because like Glenn Rice said, you didn't have to, right? But I feel like there's something in all of us who make us really want to put, or, and I'm going to say our necks on the line because this is not easy work to do. So what was that 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 particular i don't know how to even phrase but what was that that one that made you want to get involved in this work and then what does the rest of the work look like for somebody else who's like me who's not like familiar with that yeah um i think what made me and of course there are always like tensions in my head about whether or not i should do this work um, because a part of me as a writer, uh, away from being an academic, I also write creatively. You know, I know, I know how to, especially on Twitter, I know how to write a good tweet. Um, and a part of that is like tapping into people's emotions, tapping into keywords that people will respond to, which conflicts with my work, right? Because I, at least when I applied for the PhD and still now, one of the things I hoped to do was to unsettle the idea that Jamaica was this like spectacularly homophobic space, right? This space that is so homophobic that no queer people can exist here. Um, you know, that there has been no history of queerness on the island. Um, and so that's what my work is trying to do. I'm trying to push against the ways that the global north, places like the US, Canada, etc., um, come with their pity party, but also their like Western savior mentality, right? Of I'm going to save all these poor, um, dying black queer people on the island, right? Um, and so my work is trying to push against that, push against that narrative because of how dangerous it is, um, you know. But <laughs> at the level of like the tweeting itself, I know, even though I try not to tap into it, I know I'm tapping into it, you know, because some of my donations tend, especially if I'm getting like $500 at a time or $1,000 at a time from somebody, I know it's coming from those white people. I know it's coming from those white people who read us in particular ways as like, um, you know, those poor queer people who, um, whose lives are so structured by violence that he, I, they need me to save them, kind of a thing. Um, and so on that level, I know that my work, even as much as like I try to distance it from it, I know it is still entangled. And, it, and, and I can't entangle it as much as I'd like to. I can't entangle it um, because of the, the pragmatics of, of, of what the material needs of you know, people. Um, and so there's always that conflict in my head about doing the work. But I continue to do it because, again, part of why we are in the situation we are in on the island is because of them. Not just, of course, colonialism, but the U.S. as well. You know, if you think about the, the 70s and the 80s and the, the Reagan and Siaga Alliance, Conservative Alliance, um, and if you think about the imposition of, especially, and America has this like really, them have amnesia, right? Because before the early 2000s, even, even maybe that is even too much 
are too too early. Before that, they weren't quite the most accepting place. Um, and so a lot of how we've learned about homophobia, even though people might think of it as indigenous, I want to think of it as something that circulates globally. Um, and so we learn from them as well about how to be homophobic. And so I'm always like conflicted when it comes to doing this work, but I, I continue to do it because I know even as they're like, even as they're thinking of us as like, you know, needing their pretty party, they, are, they have actively contributed um, to the homophobia on the island, the UK, the US, uh, you know, all those like global north spaces. Um, and so that's why I continue to do the work, but also I think as an academic, sometimes it's so easy to be, and I'm not saying that, you know, all academics need to like raise funds or to be materially committed to a community, though that would be nice, but sometimes we can become so removed um, from the people that we're writing about. Um, but as somebody who's like trained with anthropologists, Jamaican anthropologists, pick up Deborah Thomas, um, that's my sis. <laughs> you know, as someone who's trained in that vein, it's like important to me to, and, and if, if you look at like Deborah's work, like she's not only like working with the people in Tivoli, but she stays connected with them. She helps where she can and so on and so forth. So like, that's important to me as an academic that like, as you say, like, I don't need to do the work, but I don't need to do the work because I'm benefiting from being here, writing about these people. I'm getting tenure because of these people. I'm like maintaining an academic position because of these people. And so I do kind of see it as a duty owed, even though I'm not entirely sure. I think I, I might want to like move this work into more manageable, um, into a more manageable way of doing it. I'm not exactly sure what that might look like. And a more like streamlined way of doing it. Uh, but yeah, I think I do it because I know that as an academic, it's so easy to be removed from, from the things that you write about. Um, so easy to be removed from community. Not just in the sense that, of course, I'm, I'm always like talking to people in, co in the community or in the, or in the networks that I'm engaged in, I'm always like talking to people and I have a sense of what's going on. But materially, you know, I, I can go home at the end of the day um, and be relatively fine. Of course, we never grow up rich, but like I can be relatively fine, you know, in, 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 in contrast to some of the people that I'm talking to and writing about, because I'm also writing about um, people who decide to um, take up asylum in the US. It's like, it's not always, not always easy, but yeah, that's why I do what I do. Friend, just to respond to the, the, um, the quandary I always say, get the guilty money and tell them to stop the guilty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I remember once somebody asked me why, um, how do I critique removing the Queen while said, so I remember I brought this up. Take the scholarship and tell them to stop the foolishness, same, same thing. I mean, they shouldn't feel, I get the tension, but it is what it is, they're not going to feel guilty anyway, so they take the money and then tell them to stop feeling guilty after, because at the end of the day, yes, yeah, help somebody who is in real need. Um, but yeah, big up yourself. Think more earlier, think more the balance in the two, big up yourself, because at the end of the day, somebody I get for go to school, somebody I get for um, have a safe place. Um, and also, I think it, it, it sends a positive signal, the fact that you're able to raise this kind, these kinds of funds in the space that you are that you occupy, because you know, just there, they are fine to take the pandemic and Twitter as an outlook again, man, a dance and a bubble with your balls, a short preach or something, and you're still, <laughs> and you're still able to get yeah. Take, have that space of prominence and do that work. So big up yourself all the time, Jovan said. <laughs> I won't disagree. Big up yourself. Be real. I have a it's question. funny you bring up that conflict. Go ahead, Quentin. No, you go, go, go. No, I'll say, I was just going to say, it's funny you bring up that conflict because that's, that's, something, that's definitely something that I'm exploring now in my dissertation, looking at um, LGBTQ-serving organizations who are in this like weird space of like, we want foundation funding because it helps us to get the work done, but at the same time, we understanding that taking foundation funding and eventually like giving into um, 
or being held accountable to their standards and so on kind of leaves us in this place where we're almost complicit in the kinds of oppression that we're trying to, you know, resolve and so on. So I never even thought about it from the individual perspective, but because I felt like individuals had more control over, you know, where the money comes from and so on. But hearing your perspective, now that's definitely interesting. Kind of. Oh yeah. Okay. I don't know. Hopefully, this makes sense. But you're so you were talking about. Okay, so you are a black queer Jamaican student who is currently in the U.S., but you're still invested in the lives and experiences of uh, Jamaican queer people in certain kind of ways. And I'm trying to. I have a question that I'm trying to think through regarding how your distance, how your platform in terms of, you know, being a PhD student at a U.S. university has afforded you the, I don't know, the, the circumstance, the, the condition, the, the ability to do the, the work that you're doing? Because I'm also wondering, would you have been able to gather as much support if you were, there's so much light, I can't even see properly. Um, would you have been able, would the response be the same if you were in Jamaica? Because I'm wondering, there, there is the possibility that some people might be like, oh, you know, they're just trying to take the money for themselves. Whereas there might be this sense that, okay, this is, this is a quote unquote academic who is in the US that we can like trust to allocate the funds uh, respectfully. Um, and I mean, there, there might be other stuff going on, going on besides the education, but I think this distance means something in terms of how people have responded so far. Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, and of, of course, I mean, these are some of the tensions that I don't think are, I don't know if it's, it's resolvable, I don't know in English, but resolvable. I don't think these tensions are resolvable. Um, and that's something I think about as well, because, and you know, these are, you know, when you're on Twitter, I don't know, I don't know if anybody else except maybe academic Twitter struggles with this, because I put PhD in my bio because I want to connect with other people doing Caribbean studies. I mean, I'm, in a, I'm at a university that supposedly does Caribbean studies, and I mean, there are a few professors who do really good work here, but like, for the most part, I'm alone, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm alone in my work, and I'm trying to find other people who are doing work um, in, in the Caribbean and about the Caribbean and queerness in the Caribbean. And so I put it out there as like a signal, like, hey, um, I, 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 want, I want you to find me. I want to get connected with you. And I found like really amazing people through Twitter because of that. Um, but I, as you say, it is also entangled in the way that like, there's a certain kind of respectability that's assigned to me as a PhD student in the US. And I always wonder how people trust me that much. And I, I never thought, I never really stopped to think about it until now. And what you're saying makes a lot of sense that like, you know, being in the US, um, being a PhD student, people do think of me as um, trustworthy in a particular way um, that, you know, actually is now kind of making me uncomfortable, you know? So, I mean, I have a lot to think about and, and thank you for that comment, but yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I, I don't know if there is any way for me to, to answer this. And I don't want to answer this by rebutting because I don't think that's the correct way to answer this, but I think, um, I think you're right. I think there are lots of tensions around like, me being here and, what that means for people. Um, yeah, but I mean, because a lot of the people who give to me, there are like queer people, black queer people in the diaspora who give to me, but a lot of people who also give to me are like white folks, you know? Um, white folks who re probably read me in a particular way because of what's in my bio. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then that's a positionality work, certainly Africa team. Because, all right, so in my mind, because um, even if you were based in Jamaica doing the kind of work you do, you so come remember, so even if in Jamaica, yeah, the distance allows white people to trust you to give you, potentially give you money to do the kind of work that you do. I don't know, though, that if you were based in Jamaica, 
um, you would have trouble raising funds. You'd have probably have trouble raising funds from white people. But that doesn't mean that them have to be the source of the funding. Because I also think about how we, in Jamaica, you're not just, the whole, where you sit also is you're an academic with a certain background who therefore have access to other academics and other people in other spaces um, with access to money. Um, so the trust then would, would have to operate at a different level. So they would trust, so white people might trust you as somebody who's studying abroad um, versus Jamaicans will trust you because they know you and certain well-to-do Jamaicans may trust you because they know you, they know which school is to go, they know all of them something about you. So I'm also thinking about, yeah, it will come into play when you talk about the source of the money. Um, but I think that's, how, that's just positionality and how it works. I think the critical point is there will always be those kinds of conflicts. You're leveraging those conflicts that emerge out of structures of um, different type, types of gradation that puts you in a certain place of privilege, but you're still cognizant of and leveraging that. So, even, so no matter where you were, you might fall somewhere else, but you would have access to wealth, I think. Um, and therefore, the, the decision to do that, to me, still has a lot of moment. Not that Karna was suggesting that it wasn't, but I think even if you shift the goalposts, you, you, you would still be scoring goals, I think. Yeah, I agree. But I think it also like puts us in a cyclical kind of, um, instead of like, you know, well, if there's anything as progress, but like a cyclical kind of time, right? Because um, if, if people are only trusting people like me to do the work um, or trusting people who, even if I'm in Jamaica of a certain you know, social standing to do the work, you know, what when somebody who is actually in need, you know, and most of the people who I'm posting about are people who are that working class, who sometimes them, sometimes them even post, they were even, you know, I could go back a couple months ago, some of these people were actually posting on their Twitter asking for help and nobody responded, you know what I mean? Nobody responded, nobody, nobody retweeted, nobody, none of that. Um, and so, I agree with you, but I feel like there's like this cycle <laughs> that that we tend to become wrapped up in because then I am seen as the person who can do the work or is positioned to do the work. Almost like, the, almost like again, traditionally, the black middle class and the upper class have been seen as like the leaders of the race kind of a thing, you know what I mean? But I agree with you that like... No, I definitely agree with that point that inevitably those of us um, doing the kind of work, whether it is fundraising or, or advocacy or anything like that, we end up in these positions where other people who are way more marginalized than us need us and, and, and have a relationship of dependency just to be just as valid or validated by the wider audience. Um, and, and, and I guess the answer is, well... Well, my answer is, well, either way, to go rough for them. Because I don't have big people. I do what I do. So, I just for me there. What I do, what I do. So, we're talking about, like, these conflicts and so on and those different... Um, I was wondering if there has been any type of backlash towards your work. What has that been like? How did you handle that? Yeah, I mean, there's not been too much, but from time to time, you know, I'll have some random person ask me to surrender the names of the people I'm um, raising funds for. I remember there's this one person who was like consistently harassing me and I had to block him, her, them, I'm not sure, but I had to block them um, because they were like consistently harassing me, asking me for receipts, asking me for names, all kinds of particular details and again it goes back to what i think glenn was saying that we have to resist we have to resist this idea of visibility as um the only way to do politics the only way to do um to care for each other right you should need to be visible to be seen to be recognized as a part of a community 
um, but a lot of these people are to be recognized as as this as um, needing care. But a lot of these people are so again suspicious, especially if you're doing doing work with like black people, <laughs> but also queer people. And then when you come by the two of them, it's just double suspicion. Um, people will say all kind of things about you putting keywords together, which of course I am putting keywords together so that y'all can feel guilty. But people say all kind of things about me putting keywords together so that it can get picked up on Twitter and I can raise myself. Meanwhile, my paycheck already done for November. I mean, I have no more money. See me, see me cornflakes in the back there and that me I got eat the rest of the month. <laughs> and so it's, it's just really, it's really, sometimes it, it's, it's annoying because um, people tend to think that like, I'm trying to do this shit for myself um, when, you know, I'm also here struggling too, you know, I'm also here struggling. So that is hard in that respect. And then every now and then, but very, very rarely to my surprise, people will be like explicitly homophobic um, mm. and will say, you know, things like one by man or whatever, like, but very rarely. I, and I'm very surprised about that. People will say things like that. I don't know if like all the homophobes have blocked me. I don't know, but <laughs> I don't know, but like they haven't really gotten in my way at all so yeah I, I haven't faced much in that regard um for the most part people have responded pretty well because again a lot of like the people who i'm following um and who follow me on twitter also do this kind of work so okay that's good yeah i know we're running out of time and i know Colonel has like a really important question but i think i'd really love to know if um like what it's a lot of work it's a lot of hard labor right so i'm curious what what has that work been like what has the toll been on you as an individual right like because i mean i'm already thinking about myself and i'm like if i was supposed to help somebody like for example i didn't raise enough money to help that person or for whatever reason i just couldn't render the help that in my head i see i saw myself giving the kind of toll or emotional toll that it probably would have taken on me like what is this work work in in its entirety like um, emotionally, and then I'm gonna shut up so that we can because I know we're running out. Before you answer more, I jump on Karen's question and also talk to us about support systems. And is there a Mister or many Misters LGBT persons of the year? <laughs> Boy, Wait, no. hold on. Can I jump on that too? I mean, <laughs> my my question is more connected to Kareem's than this. Um, your Mister LGBT persons and so on. But I was wondering, let me see if I can phrase this properly. Hmm. In the absence of your own Javante, that is someone that you can turn to, to kind of uh, publicize or like advocate for some kind of support. Like what are, cause you were talking about, you know, you're also facing certain circumstances as a grad student who's being exploited by the university. I can identify with that as a as an international student who has like far less opportunities for funding and support than your peers <laughs> what are strategies that you have also taken to i don't know to get by um yeah, yeah. okay so there's a lot of questions i'm going to try to remember them but the emotional tools i'll start there for me I mean it's been it's been pretty it's been like a roller coaster, like literally like a roller coaster because people message me and they they're like in all of these like dire situations. I might be having a good day, I get that message and I'm like shit. Um and it's hard, you know, it's hard. And sometimes I get these messages like months in advance, like I'll tweet about something that somebody asked me to help them with like a month ago. Um, but because I was I was currently doing one and I wanted to space them out so that you know my tear doesn't get overwhelmed, um, I didn't get to help them. So it's like really it takes a toll on me emotionally because some of these situations are like really dire. Um, and yeah, and to be honest, I was uh, before I got the award, and I mean I still am thinking of this as well. I was winding down because 
how do I be frank about this without being frank about this? It's like, I'm a part of like academic Twitter and there's still a certain kind of like respectability that, that we, as, an, as a grad student, I'm supposed to have, which of course includes not whining on Twitter, but apart from that, also includes, you know, things like fundraising and asking for funds online. You know, and I, I've only heard whispers of people talking about it, about me doing that online. I haven't like, nobody has like confronted me about it, but I was intending to wind on because I'm like, okay, like I also have to think about the fact that I'm the oldest of five siblings. I'm going to need a job in three years and I'm really connected to academic Twitter. You know, I'm really connected to a lot of the people I want to work with. And I'm not sure how they're perceiving this. Like, do they think I'm like um, queer, not queer baiting, that's not a correct phrase, but like, am I like uh, conjuring some pity party to raise funds for these people? And you know how academics tend to be very like idealistic, which I, I think our idealism is good sometimes, but sometimes it tends to get in the way. Um, and so I, I wonder about that, you know, from the little whispers that I've heard here and there from friends. You know, how are like people who who I might be on, whose department I might be trying to be a part of, like, how might they be perceiving me? Um, and so it takes a toll on, on that level too, because, you know, I mean, I just got three more requests and I'm like, I, I was intending to close this off in December, right? But people still need help. And I'm not going to let academics like stand in the way of me helping people. Um, fuck that shit. So, you know, it's been hard emotionally because I have to like carefully weigh my future because my future, again, I'm not, I'm not just the only one. Like my, my siblings are tied up in my future. I, a part of why I'm eating cornflakes this month is because I had to buy three tablets <laughs> so that they could, um, so that they could go to school online this, this, um, this month. So it's like, it's hard. It's really hard. Like, Constantly, and I've had a few academics like unfollow me because of it, um, you know. Um, so it's like tough. It's like tough, but I mean, I think it's important work. And just in my mind, I'm like, I do this, and I will continue to do this, whether or not people unfollow me. And if they unfollow me, that to me is a sign that I don't want to be in their department anyway. So I will continue to do this work. And there are also academics who constantly give and who support me. So those are the people I will lean into, even though sometimes it breaks my heart when people unfollow me because, um, and again, I can never say fully if that's, if that's why they unfollow me, but I'm always tweeting about it. And sometimes I see like shady tweets or like, you know, sub tweets about the work that I do. And so that always makes me wonder, are you talking about me? Are you talking about somebody? I don't know. Um, but emotional support otherwise for me is hard and I, I tend to lean on my mentors. So like Deborah is somebody like, you know, she's, she's good. Like when I need somebody to review an essay, but also like if I, if I need help financially, you know, she helps me out a lot. Um, my advisors here at, at Miami, you Miami, um, Danette Francis, big up Danette's. Yeah, she's Jamaican. And big up Jafari Allen, um, my queer godfather, my theory godfather, who always helps me out as well. Um, and so, yeah, those people have been like really good support for me. Um, yeah. And is there a Mr. 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 Wait, wait, LGBT. <laughs> well, right now, um, there's like three, there's like three niggas in my life and they're all trifling, but you know, we move. Um, but I do like, I really do like this one that I'm, I'm like seeing one from who's in Texas right now. So I, everybody long distance, which is like annoying because you know dick is uh, dick is necessary so it's like hard um there's one here in miami he's he's nice but like him too him too all over the place i have a feeling say mr scammer which i'm not against dating them but me just want to know so if somebody show up on my gate me can know you know me can, you know only take food and experiences from man like that food <laughs> <laughs> 
you're right, you're right. And maybe that's what I need to do because I mean, I like I like hanging out with him. He's nice, he's sweet, um, and you know, he's well endowed. So that's great. Um, <laughs> and they all know about each other. They don't need to know about each other. Well, them know now coming out of this outside of the podcast. Oh, well. <laughs> that's okay. That's if okay. I dirt, I dirt. <laughs> yes, with that business. But yeah, and then there's one that I'm seeing at Yale who he's like, he's really nice. Um, he's older, he's sweet. And, you know, I like our conversations a lot. And, you know, he's like, very dateable, but again, so far away. So, I mean, that's my love life. I don't really have, I don't really get much love, but you know, I do take a lot of nudes. So that's great. That's always <laughs> Um And I send them out, me and my friends like, <laughs> I can't sending each other nudes, which like, keeps us alive in this pandemic, you know. For now. Like, we'll boost each other up. <laughs> He's like, no, no, I'll pass. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's my uh, life. So I was gonna say, um, there's a broader point about you know providing sustainable support for LGBT persons in need that I guess we'll have to explore at another time. And it's a point that I brought up with you, I think, when we had a brief, brief conversation once. But I really want to thank you for one accepting the award, but also for doing the kind of work that you do and joining us here on Fish Tea to talk about it. But you know, we wind it now, right now. I'm, you might hear some sizzling in the background. That's right, hold on to somebody else. Um, <laughs> we wrap up. Jawante, thank you so much for spending your, well, part of your afternoon with us. Um, and, you know, letting us into the life and times of Javante Anderson. I wish you well in all of your work and all of your endeavors. Um, please, let's stay in touch because you're working on some interesting things that I, even myself, I'd love to see how best I can um, be a part of that. To our listeners, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for um, rocking out with us for the past three seasons. Um, if you have any comments for us, please remember to send them to us at fishteapodcast at gmail.com or on all our socials at fishteapodcast or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. As usual, <laughs> like, share, um, subscribe, give us some ratings, give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And stay sophisticated. Bye. Bye.